Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 52, recorded on August 9th, 2016. My name is Julie Faithan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How are you? I made you cough earlier. Yes, just the thought of you makes me <laughs> just cough. the thought of me makes you cough. So are you okay now? <laughs> I'm perfectly fine. Okay, so today we are going to be doing a show that's based on listener mail, and I'm hoping that we can actually do this every few months because I like to think of the podcast as a conversation, as a dialogue, and I, we do read all of the comments and the emails and all that kind of stuff. So if you have things you'd like to talk about or ideas, I'd love it if you'd leave a comment so that we can can get to it um, and talk about it. Sound good? Are you asking me? Well, (laughs) as much as I say it's a dialogue, they can't actually respond in real time. So yes, I'm asking you. I think it sounds great and I'll be sure and leave a lot of comments. I'm sure you will. You'll be happy to know that 90% of the comments are about how great you are. So I do get tired writing all those yeah, comments. Yeah, there you go. So congratulations. Anyway, um, magically, though, I have not included any of those comments in today's listener mail. <laughs> so our first comment is from Laura. Um, and she said, I'm trying to encourage my daughter to still occasionally play around with drawing or painting, etc. She's 12 and thinks she stinks at art. I told her your story of how you used to think that and now you're a professional artist. I showed her your blog and your art. The other night I got her to hang out and do some doodling with me. Art is too fun to give up on. So I picked that comment because I love the idea that you know, that this podcast and that you and I could help somebody who thinks that you're just supposed to magically be good at art, you know, and doesn't under, it doesn't yet understand that art is a practice, you know? Well, I would just say the following, which uh, is not brain surgery, but I think we, we act as if art is different from the practice of anything else. So it's all about the end product and about what other people think of it. Uh, If you took tennis lessons or played tennis and you realized you were never going to Wimbledon, would you say, well, then I can't play tennis because I will never be at Wimbledon? Or do you say, I love playing tennis for so many reasons and I'm enjoying it, so I'm going to keep doing it. I mean, I think that's an attitude that we need to apply to the practice of art. I agree, and I think it actually, I mean, first of all, I'm a, I'm a Boston kid. I grew up in Boston, despite the, the 17 years or so I spent in New York in the middle. But I remember lots of talk about Larry Bird when I was a kid, and the big thing about Larry Bird that people always said is that when he was a kid, he had practiced his jump shot and his free throws every day for hours and hours and hours when things got dark. And it, there was always this belief about him that, part of his greatness was about how hard he worked and that he just continually and you hear it all the time actually about pro athletes when they talk about people who after practice is over hit the weight room or again I'm a Boston person so like Tom Brady you know working out you know constantly and doing this special and that special and da 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 and I think it's true which is you know some people have more innate skill or talent than other people do for lots of different things you know um but It is the working hard in any of these that makes the difference between, you know, okay and good or between good and excellent. Well, and the point I was trying to make is, are you doing it because you want to become a famous artist or are you doing it because you love doing it and it it brings you some 
thing. Use this part of your brain that you want to use. I, I think, again, are you oriented toward the product or the process? Right. This is like, remember, I remember, so I took dance classes for a while just for fun because I like dancing. I'm terrible at it, but I like it. And then I remember I moved to New York and you were like, why don't you take a dance class? And I was like, every single person in those classes is a professional dancer and it is intimidating and horrible to be in there with them. And it makes it not fun. I think you were living in Times Square also. Yes. So the the natural constituency of who lives there is a lot of professional yeah. dancers <laughs> and and I think that's right if it's not enjoyable you won't do it and it's not enjoyable partly if you're constantly comparing to other people and if you're constantly thinking that you should be at a professional level in order to justify doing it I agree. And that just goes back to so many things we have talked about, just about not comparing yourself to others and pursuing it because it's fun. And that is, in fact, how Laura ends her letter. She says, art is too fun to give up on. And Good. I agree. And if it's not fun, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> anyway, even though there is no wrong, but you know what I mean. Okay. So Jill O left a comment. She said, great podcast. It got me thinking about all sorts of stuff. I remember writing a paper in college about how museums, orchestras, dancers, as well as the theater are facing the dilemma Eileen spoke of. Art needs to be easily accessible to youth as well as lower income families for a better quality of life, among other things. Oftentimes, the arts are considered unnecessary, too highbrow, or only for the upper classes. Art organizations that offer youth programs but just sit back waiting for folks to come to them are missing the boat. They need to take art to the people. Okay, I guess you really got me going. Just goes to show how good a podcast it was. Now I'm going to find out if my town's art museum has some sort of council. Thanks. But I liked this letter for a bunch of different reasons. But, I mean, I do think that idea of they need to take art to the people made me think a little bit about. So I'm going to Austin to teach some classes in September. And I'm staying with some people who recommended that I look into. I guess there's a public park that people paint or create murals in and you can get a license to do it anybody can um, and I think street art sort of coming into the sort of cultured halls of art um, is is sort of one aspect of that idea of art coming to the people I'm gonna say the following as well uh if, for cultural institutions to last, they have to keep generating new uh, participants. And I think that's a universal problem in America right now, is that all these cultural institutions are dependent on the largesse of an older, dwindling group of people. And you have to have the interest of younger people in order to, to maintain yourselves. And in fact, I think if you'll remember when Detroit uh, was bankrupt and they wanted, some people thought that they should sell off some of the artworks from their museum. Uh, there was a big pushback on that because they, uh, there was recognition that it's important to have art accessible to your your local population. I think what happens is pe people think that only certain types of people would be interested in art or that only certain types of things are art. And 
I think one of the educational things that has to happen, not just by museums and other cultural institutions, but by schools, is you have to make it clear that the word art is a gigantic umbrella and that art is a way of communication and that communication skills are extremely valuable and that it's a way, it's just like you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't say, okay, if you can't sing at the Metropolitan Opera, let's not have a chorus. You know, you understand that there's value of all kinds in pursuing the different arts that has nothing to do with even with becoming a professional. So you don't say, well, you're not going to take physics because you're never going to be a physicist. Um, Although that was my personal philosophy, however. And look, you have not become a physicist. It's true. And I just keep falling down whenever I try to walk anywhere. Uh, no. So what I was going to say is I think I, I think there's a bunch of stuff here, which is one, it makes me think about I remember going to the uh, the Denver Art Museum and being so impressed with how embracing they were in the sense of the museum itself. They have um, paper and pencils around and they have things that say, you know, try to draw a picture of this or that ask you questions i found their signage was really explaining the art in in uh you know easy to understand terms and words and there was just stuff there that i felt like this is a friendly museum that is interested in getting you to be uh a part of it you know and not trying to hold itself separate and i have been into museums many some of my favorite museums in fact but nonetheless which have a more austere version of this is art and if you don't like it go you know jump in a lake i i also think there it's a there's there's a difficult line here but on the one hand you don't want people grabbing at the art if you go on the internet you can see some disasters that happened when people did touch the art Uh, on the other hand the idea that this is that a museum is a temple and you have to behave in a particular way or you don't belong there is very intimidating and keeps people out. The other thing is because of the expense of going to a lot of museums, it's hard for some families to take their kids there. And uh, I think there has been effort to, you know, have certain free days or, or, whatever, but people have to recognize it's a choice of how to spend your money. And uh, for some people, that's not the choice that they're going to make. But if your parents don't go and you're not exposed as a child, then you're less interested. It's just the way it is. Well, I have two things to say, which is I agree, but which is to say, obviously, museums need to have free days. I've been to several museums, in fact, that are completely free admission for everyone. But I also know that going to a baseball, a football, a hockey, whatever, those games are expensive. It's really expensive. But those stands are full. And people make the choice to do that even when it is pushing at it because there's a passion for it. Because when I worked in the theater, this was a conversation we had constantly. The average theater ticket in New York for a non-Broadway show for just a regular play, and there are hundreds of them in the city every night, is $15. It's less than a movie ticket in New York these days. And yet people don't come. 
And so price isn't always the barrier. Sometimes it is just that it doesn't occur to you. And I think that's a thing about when you're a kid, if your parents didn't take you to a museum, if your teachers didn't take you to a museum, if nobody told you that going to a museum was important, if nobody told you that, you know, looking at art, it's the same thing with like charity and giving and all that kind of stuff, which is if you never had the example in your life that you're supposed to give and donate and volunteer and help, then how do you know to do those things? And so I think, you know, you can preach at people all you want, but in the end, I think you have to sort of live by example and you have to sort of help the others around you try to live by example too. You know, what can you do to invite a friend to the museum to take somebody else's kids with you the next time that you go to, you know, talk about art to people in exciting terms. I think the, those are the only ways that we get art to, you know, be recognized as something that should be a part of somebody, of everybody's life. Well, thank you. We've solved that one. You think so? You think I just single-handedly, <laughs> there you go, world peace. Okay. Anyway. Moving on. Um, so Nancy Gill said, today's podcast was full of food for thought. I listened while walking and tried hard to remember all my thoughts till I got home and could write them down. And just as a side note, this is me, Julie speaking. Um, a lot of people told us when they listened to the podcast, what they were doing. And I liked hearing that. Some people are said they were doing clerical work or they're on their drive, you know, or they're walking or they're, you know, right before they're going to bed or they're in their studio drawing or whatever it is. And it's, it's kind of fun to imagine that you're with people in all these life things that they're doing. But anyway, okay, so back to Nancy. So she says, last year I went to a Van Gogh show and we can argue about whether we say Van Gogh or Van Gogh. I'm American, so I think I say Van Gogh, right? I don't know, but you're not supposed to. Isn't it really pronounced something like Van Gogh? I think the important thing is that I understand who you're talking about. Who I'm referring about, to you, anyway. You say it. Anyway, so last year she went to this show with my friend Vincent um, at the Clark Museum. And uh, I noticed that the works of art from one specific museum in Europe had all of his work framed in very minimal wood frames. They stood out in sharp contrast to the more elaborate frames on all the other work. Even though they were very simple frames, I thought because of their similarity that they were distracting. That the frames were distracting because they were similar? Yeah. When I mean, I think this goes back to the whole thing we were talking about, about framing artwork and how it changes it and people changing uh -huh. the intention of the artist. I mean, that was what a lot of that podcast was about. There's a huge art, if I may use that word again, to framing, <clears throat> to selecting the mat, how much mat, if there is any mat, what kind of frame, uh, size, uh, style period whatever I just think people don't pay much attention to that but that is an enormously uh, uh, difficult uh, aspect of presenting art well I also think the assumption that every piece of art would fit in the same frame you know even by the same artist sort of seems to me that that doesn't make any sense well I don't know if that was if those are the frames that are used in the museum from which those works came and that how it looks in the setting. It's hard at some level to discuss framing without thinking about the placing, you know, where the where is this art being displayed and what kind of atmosphere? It's like you may look at a certain hat in a store and say, oh, this hat would be great. And then when you put it on with an entire outfit and you see a full-length mirror and you see yourself 
you realize that there's something off about it. It a lot depends on the circumstances, you know, the environment in which it's displayed. So it's hard for me to say. Clearly, it wasn't those frames weren't put on just for this exhibit because then all of the artworks, not just the ones from this museum, would have had those frames. I don't think I think it's above my pay grade to figure out. <laughs> I don't think it's a matter of like this figuring issue. out like the right and the wrong. I think it's more of like an interesting observational point of view. Like sometimes you look at something and something's not right. And I know that one of my great, the one of the things that I always try to do when I'm looking at art in a gallery online, you know, in a museum is I'm always trying to think, what do I like about this? And what do I not like about it? And if you can start to define those things, then you can start to find your way into letting it inspire you. You know what I mean? This is what I want to do in my work. I like this color combo so much. This is what I don't want to do in my work. It, you know, I don't like the way that the image falls off the edge of the canvas or whatever it is right and i think that framing is part of that because presentation is such an important part of um the experience of art you know i remember i think i've told a story before that i ran into a woman at the matisse cutouts exhibit in new york at moma who had seen it at the tate in london and i said how does it compare now understanding it's the exact same exhibit except that it's not, right? It's the exact same pieces. And she said, oh, it was much better in London because there was more space. And so there was more space between the pieces. They weren't all sort of jammed together, which for her made for a better viewing experience. And she felt that the art could stand on its own in a different way than when it was all jammed up together, you know? Which actually gets to a, a side issue, which I don't mean for us to go down this rabbit hole, but there is a whole school of thinking about whether a lot of art today is made for museums, for homes, for, for grand palazzos, for outdoors. I mean, it does make a difference in how you uh, perceive the art. If you look at like some of the, if you go to a museum and you look at those gigantic, uh, uh, like a Titian or something, they're clearly not meant to be displayed in your house. They're clearly meant to be large public art in some official building. On the other hand, if you look at a Japanese screen, a lot of them are designed to be in a home. So or in a more modest setting it may not be a home but but i'm just saying yeah i mean it's like to, the idea yeah. for the modern brain it's almost like photo staging like if you take a picture of your project but then you take a picture of project with like some stuff around to like stage it there's some people who are just really brilliant at that stuff and it always looks better and it actually reminds me so i went to the isabel stewart garden museum and i did do a long blog post about it and it's under construction or renovation right now and so all the art that they've taken from the second floor they have now displayed on um, just regular like gallery walls right so you can go and see it up close you're not and it's not within Isabella Stewart Gardner's home which to say is a like a multi-layered visually rich tapestry would be an understatement do you know what I mean it's layers of color and pattern and the lighting's not great and yada 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 so then seeing the paintings in the on the gallery walls was interesting because I had always thought that she had such beautiful art in her collection and somehow when it went on the gallery walls I was underwhelmed 
which is a very interesting reaction to it since I've seen it in both, you know, uh, in situ and is out of situ of word. I don't even know. Anyway. Um, and I think, you know, the thing is when you're looking at a painting without its surroundings, you are really looking at the painting for all the beauty as opposed to when it's in its, in its place, I think sometimes it has supporting, helping whatever elements it coordinates well. It's why, like, w you'll see oftentimes one of the first things that designers do on HGTV or anything like that is they put art on those walls. Because the art ties the room together. It brings in the accents. It does whatever. But if you pulled most of those pieces of art that they use off those walls, you would probably most of the time be like, eh, do you know what I mean? That art is not gorgeous art just in and of itself. It's and the jewelry. It's, it's the jewelry, jewelry for the set. It is. And sometimes, you know, I feel like, there are pieces that are so strong that you can't put it behind your couch because all that happens is everybody just stares at it, you know? Which I guess maybe that's fine. Maybe you have an ugly couch and you're trying to distract people with your beautiful piece of art, but who knows? But it is, I do think there is something about like wherever a painting uh, is meant to live, whether it's in the frame, in the house. And like, I, I love, there's this one room at the MFA Boston that I love because what they've done is they've displayed all the pieces there as they would have been displayed in the time period that they were created, which is to say in that time, they used to layer the paintings, start hanging them at the floor and they would hang them all the way to the ceiling. So you would have, it's actually kind of how you've hung your house, mom. <laughs> it's like, you know, four or five rows of, of oil paintings, do you know what I mean? Just hanging on these red brocade walls and they're just packed. And then there's a statue in front of it. And there's another statue over here. And it's, that's how the galleries would have looked at the time. And what you learn when you read the signage in that gallery is that because this is the way that the art was hung, painters to, used to do things to try to bring your attention to their painting in this visual chaos. So there's, you know, a bright spot here. There's a red, you know, bright red throw thrown in there. There's a, you know, they've put gilded gold on it so that you look at it so it catches the light if it's there. Because, you know, the better known artists were hung sort of at the eye line and everybody else got spread around. And so I think then knowing that you start to look at those paintings so differently, right? Because now you know not only were they created, but they were also created to catch the eye in a crowd. Right. And then that relates to the issue of if you are an, trying to work and earn a living as a professional artist, the marketplace has to play a part in your decisions that you make about the art yeah. that you create. And that's a whole other conversation. But so art is never totally separate mm -hmm. from the cultural milieu in which it from which I don't it comes. know why this occurs to me, but I was so I recently went to a black and white party where everybody's supposed to wear black and white. And the first thing I thought is, hmm, I wonder, who, you know, is anybody gonna have the balls basically to show up in a red dress? Like, do you do you dare, you know, when something like that is happening? Um, but what was interesting is there were a number of women who showed up with, yes, you're wearing black and white, but red shoes, red purse, red scarf, because you they were looking for something to stand out from the crowd. 
And I think that that makes me think for of that same idea of like you create this art and it needs to fit within a certain set of parameters because obviously you're creating for, you know, the customer, the whatever. But it's like you're, you, you're putting on that red scarf to stand out in the room. Or maybe you just look terrible in black and white. <laughs> you just look terrible. Doesn't everybody look good in black and white? You think there are people who look bad in black and white? I think color gives you an enormous lift. Wow. That's and terrible. can enhance your natural coloring. Uh, I mean, you know this from color theory. What colors you put next to each other really change your perception of those colors. And your face is a series of colors as well. Yeah, but it's interesting that everybody who chose to wear color to add color to their outfit seemed to chose, choose red. There wasn't like, hey, I'm going to wear a pair of yellow shoes. Hey, here's a green scarf. Hey, here's a – it was everybody went with red. That is an interesting choice. It is. Anyway, we're not allowed to use the word interesting. I'll just remind oh. you. Well, you already was... used it. You used it several <laughs> times. Okay, so Nancy continues on and she says, if an artist hires others to create their work, are they really the artist? Do they become a designer and not a maker? And she said, recently watching a Netflix series called The Chef's Table, and she recommends it to you, Mom. She says, I think your mom would like that series. They profiled a chef named Grant, and I apologize if this is mispronounced, Achatz? Achatz? A-C-H-A-T-Z. Um, he had cancer and lost his ability to taste. He said it freed his mind to create new dishes. The dish was his conception, but he didn't cook them. Should the person who actually did the cooking get the credit for the amazing execution? And then the good news is that Grant did survive the cancer, and slowly his ability to taste did return. Is this a guy from Chicago, maybe? All I know is this. If you think that every time you go to a restaurant that the chef who is named, has prepared your dish, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no. <laughs> yeah, and that's the same thing with art, which is I know nowadays it's much more common that artists are, I think, even more open about how they're using other people to paint. We actually, I saw a great exhibit at MoMA, I'm trying desperately to remember the artist's name, and he had done an experiment. He's a German artist. Oh, God, what is his name? Anyway, but one of the things he had done is he had hired billboard painters. He had, he had set up a photograph and asked a stranger on the, tree, on the streets to press the shutter on the camera that was uh, that he had set up on a tripod. And so he didn't even take the photograph technically. Then he sent it off to be developed and he sent the photo to a billboard painter and gave the um, sign painter, you know, the dimensions and asked the person to paint it and then signed his name on the bottom of it. And it was this whole question of which he was asking and which the museum was clearly saying the answer to is yes, which is, is this my art? I didn't take the picture. I didn't paint the painting. All I did was conceive of it by setting up the photo. And then I think there was even a series where he went one step further where he asked somebody, he handed somebody on the street a camera and said, can you take a picture of something? And so he didn't even set up the picture and then sent it off to the painter, had the painter do it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I think there are these interesting questions about, uh, you know, what is art? Is it the concept of it that makes you the artist? Is it the execution of it? You know, is, you know, execution a different kind of art than concept? I mean, and it's an interesting question that I've actually had with my assistant, Suzanne, right? If she helps me out making something, you know, in my studio, what part of that is my art and what part of that is her art? Well, if you, again, 
anybody who thinks that everything that is produced is from this artist, I don't know, does this artist stretch his or her own canvases or, uh, you know, who... I, I think more and more it's become about the idea. Yeah. I mean, I think there are plenty of books that are not, that are ghostwritten. I happen to know for a fact that there are, you know, there are ghostwriters in the craft industry who write articles and books for people who don't actually write their books. There are ghost designs. People, I spoke to a graphic designer at a company the other day who does designs for a very famous and well-known designer, you know, but uh, that designer comes in with ideas and then you know, that's done. I mean, I, I think there it's just what I, for me, what I have come to and thinking about how the masters have done it and how people have done it over time and how it works across many industries is in the end, you get credit for the concept. That's where it seems to sort of sit. And, and then the, the work getting done, which then leads to, sorry, I'm now going down a huge rabbit hole, but I feel like, I feel like maybe the title of this episode should be going down a million rabbit holes, but anyway, or chasing the white rabbit or something. But anyway, so that's probably a drug reference anyway, never mind. So what I was going to say. <laughs> See, this is my, my level of innocence. I was thinking Alice in Wonderland. I was thinking Alice in Wonderland too, but then I was thinking of something else. Anyway. So what I was going to say is I actually was thinking of the matrix anyway. And then somebody told me anyway, regardless, regardless, now I'm really down a rabbit hole. The point that I was trying to make is that there are so many people who have this conversation about, is it art or is it a craft? And so, you know, if you can draw realistically, you're an artist. And if you can't, then you're not. But then on the other hand, maybe, you know, it's not that skill, that physical ability to do those things that makes you an artist. It's the ability to think or to dream or to conceptualize in a way that somebody else can't that makes you an artist. And the physical skill, I mean, it is the question, which is how is it different to use a computer to help you with something that you can't do than to use a person? to help you to do something you can't do if well, or if even i if, you know and if you look at it even further so maybe using a camera it's not a computer but it is a machine right. that you're using to help you i mean and and i i think at the end you have to stop judging and just say am i enjoying the communication from this artist right. that he or she is presenting to me am i getting something out of it Am I feeling a window has been opened into something that I hadn't known was there? Then that's enough for me. I mean, now that it seems that Vermeer basically traced his paintings using lenses, do we say that Vermeer is not an amazing artist anymore? You know? Yeah, I mean, forget that guy. I know. What a jerk that guy <laughs> is. Anyway, okay. So Nancy has one more question before we leave her letter, which she says, finally, if a museum acquires a work of art from an artist, does the artist retain rights to reproduce the work? If the museum never exhibits the piece, how can the artist share his or her work with the world? Thank you to you and your mom for pushing my thinking today. So my understanding, and mom, you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong, is when you sell a work of art, you sell the rights that go with it. So That's my understanding as well. And the person you've sold it to can license it for, you know, calendars or T-shirts, tea towels, yeah, yes. whatever. And that you no longer own the rights to it. And I think that's an interesting thing because I know a lot of people nowadays will sell the original and still make 
uh, still have prints or, you know, reproductions of the old one. But my understanding is of the old one, of the piece. But my understanding is that the rights really go with the person who bought the piece. But I don't know if that's still true there's, or not. There's an ongoing conversation about the fact that if you, uh, for example, create a piece of music, even, you, you retain the rights to that that tune, that music. Right. But if you create a piece of art and let's say you're a an artist and you got $100 for it and later you become extremely famous and the person you sold it to can sell it for $500,000, none of that goes back to the artist. And th that conversation is happening because it seems... Uh, uh, it seems somehow wrong, but you know, there are but a lot it of things. But it doesn't, it doesn't, because yeah. like, no, I mean, that's a person who took a risk on you when you weren't worth right. that, and they should be able to reap the benefit unless they like held you a gunpoint about it. That's the fair price that you negotiated for. I don't know. I feel like if, if you, if you sold that piece at that time period and that was what you believed it was worth and now it's worth more then that's too bad for you. I think that applies to a lot of situations. I mean, it, you sell a house for X and then the market goes up and that person is able to sell it for X plus whatever. Yeah. It's the same idea, but I think it is an ongoing conversation because intellectual property is is a separate category. We're, it, I think you'll see ongoing discussion of this for many years. I think there's lots. I mean, the thing is, as art becomes a commodity and people, you know, it's worth more money than and when you're talking about millions of dollars. Of course, people want to get in on it. I mean, speaking of David Hockney, but anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, so Irene said, this is my first podcast. I have to go back through the previous one. So thought-provoking. I sometimes make a point of going to an exhibit that is outside my typical taste because I always walk away with some type of appreciation of the process or the intent. And I thought that was a really interesting comment because it made me think of, I, I wrote this article years ago, which I think I've mentioned before for Cloth, Paper, Scissors, about taking classes and about how you have to go into class looking for one thing, one thing from class that you've learned, no matter how bad the class is. You just have to walk away with one thing. And I think sometimes that attitude of gratitude can make that experience a good one no matter what but it also just means that you're open and I think this idea of going to an exhibit that you are thinking you probably won't like and just looking for that one thing that you can like that does excite you that does interest you do you know what I mean that that can make that whole visit worthwhile and sometimes can change your thinking so Again, I, I don't know why I always do this, but I always make analogies because sometimes it helps me understand things better. You may think you're not going to like rutabaga, but at least you should try it because maybe there's a way that rutabaga can be prepared that you're going to love it and it's going to surprise you. At well, least you will know better. I will say this. I've always hated cubism. I mean, hated cubism. Like, looked like if I wandered into a cubist gallery, turned around and walked out, kind of hated. And then I took a class on cubism. And I can't say that I would ever, like, purchase or love a cubist painting. But I 
understand it now in a different way. I also understand why I don't like it because I like, I tend to, this is a personal preference. This isn't a good or bad thing. I tend to like art that's emotional. That makes me have an emotional reaction. Cubism was really started as an intellectual exercise by a number of artists to see what they could push and change. And they weren't trying to create emotional pieces. Now there are people who may look at cubist paintings and feel deep emotion. And I say rock on with your bad self. But I personally feel nothing when I look at them. But I will say that having now tried to experimented with working in a cubist way and experiment and like sort of read a little bit more about cubism and heard a lot more about it, I at the very least now can see those paintings, appreciate them and find something to say, you know, that's in it's not interesting. Nothing's interesting. Let's not say interesting. That's thought provoking. That's compelling. That's makes me, you know, think. Well, Julie, how you've grown. Oh my gosh. I'm so I'm so grown up now. It's very exciting. Um anyway, so Crystal said it would be good to post about your failure and show it and explain why you think it is not working. Maybe a discussion could take place on how to change it, where it needs change, how to use other techniques, etc. to progress. So I thought that was an was a thought-provoking and compelling <laughs> comment for a number of reasons. Um, the first of them is I think this is a lot of times what I do in class is I talk about why things work and why they don't. But also I wanted to say because I got a, a, a letter, an email recently, Mom, which I, I forwarded to you, where somebody told me that the art that I made was crappy and that all I did was take uh, art and, and ruin it and that I wasn't teaching anybody anything and I should get off the Internet. Which, and so this is our last podcast. Well, there you go. So this is, and so and this is the <laughs> this end is of it. the blog. Goodbye. Uh, no. So and of course, you know, regardless of whatever that person's motivations were in sending me a, 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 such an important and meaningful letter full of vitriol, um, I was thinking about the fact that that is what makes it hard to post things you're not 100% comfortable with online. Because even when you say this didn't work for me and I think this is why somebody out there, you know, there's this feeling is lurking around just wanting to say, um, yeah, you suck, you know? And I think that's just a really hard, uh, thing to navigate, which is how do you let yourself be vulnerable and yet not feel vulnerable when people say things? Cause it's, even if I say to you, like, uh, oh, you know, I don't feel great. I feel like I gained a little weight and my face is a little round or something. If somebody were to say to me, yeah, you have been looking a little fat, I think I would like not be happy about it. You know what I mean? Even though I've just admitted it. And I think the same thing is true, which is when you have something that you've made and it didn't work and you're not happy with it and you say it didn't work and blah, 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 to have, you know, 20 people say, yeah, it doesn't work at all. It's a mess is not encouraging even though they're just agreeing with you so I think that's why it's very hard to do those things and I'm always impressed with people who find a way to do it you know just the two things I would say in regard to this whole experience is one it's a lot different when a comment comes from someone you know with whom you have a relationship and you and you feel that they're there 
to support you doesn't mean they're not critical, but they're there, you know, that they're, they're there supporting you. Then from a total stranger out of the anonymous ether whom you have no idea who they are, and then they're just gone. That's one. So consider the source when you get criticism. And then the other is everything can't be a vote. You know, it's not about like 12 people liked it and 400 people didn't like it, and therefore it must be terrible. It's you're your, your customer for your art. Yes, and in fact, yesterday my father came over and I have a painting that I love that is maybe my favorite painting I've ever painted. And I said, oh, do you like my new painting? And he said, it's all right. And I thought, you know what? The good news is I love it. I don't care yeah. if you do or not, and that's fine. You know, and I think there's lots of stuff like that, which is, and I know I've said this before a million times, but you have to invest in yourself and you have to believe in yourself and you have to like what you like. And it's, it's the same thing about if you want to wear pink socks and everyone else is wearing black socks, rock on with those pink socks and the same, or, you know, or red shoes at, or a, black red shoes and white at a black and white party. But that's what I said when I said, who's going to have the balls to show up in a red dress? Because it's not that you're not allowed to do that. It's not that you wouldn't look fantastic. It's that you have to be brave enough to stand up from the crowd and know that that's the right choice for you. And it, I, I, I always come back to this line from this Harlequin romance novel that I read years ago where this, of course, the, the poor but beautiful young lady is a governess to a rich, single, brooding man. And as she's teaching... I, I hope he's a count. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Or anyway, But anyway, as she's teaching his orphan child, you know, because the, the mother died or whatever. Anyway. But it can't be an orphan. It's not an orphan. It's a father. His, okay, whatever. The daughter. His as she's, ward. Okay, his, his ward. ward his ward whatever it is you know and she's teaching her embroidery and the girl and she says you know you can and the girl says what if i want to make you know purple stems and and green flowers and she says to her to teach her a life lesson you know you can you can make this any color that you want so you have choices which is you either make it the colors that people regularly make it and get along with everyone or you make it the colors that you want and you have to deal with the fallout from that I would I would say that you have a career in writing romances if you should ever feel like switching. There you go. I'm just saying. But this so the, but that's the idea which is I think you can make any choice that you want at, about things being good or bad or whatever. You just have to you have to believe in it and screw everyone else. Anyway, okay. And and will there be a duke at the end of it? Yes. There's always a duke <laughs> somewhere. Um, so Cindy said, I really enjoy your podcast. You and your mother always bring a smile to me. You are too funny. It is great to hear about your travels, reactions with people, teaching and art and theater also. This whole copying and copyright thing is so confusing. I think you must have to have a tremendous amount of energy and diversity to make a living in art. And that is why you have had such success. You got me into creating from both TV and following you years ago. Thank you. I imagine you don't even know all the good you have contributed. I had a very serious illness back in 2004 and your influence, family, and friends kept me going. The art was there 24-7 when I needed to occupy my mind. I am very grateful for that. Never doubt yourself. So I, I picked this one uh, 
for a, a couple different reasons. First, first let us say thank first you. First, let us say thank you. Yes, thank you very much. And there are actually a lot of people that I want to say thank you to because I run into people who often in person will say to me, I was going through X or I was dealing with the death of this or I had cancer or I was whatever. And they tell me, you know, that art saved them. And that I was some small part of that. And I think that that is amazing. Because I know that during my lowest, darkest periods in my life, you know, art definitely saved me. And I think part of the proselytizing, if I can call it that, that I do about art journaling and about making art and about believing in yourself is that I think that when you make art and find peace with what you create, you actually start to find peace with, you know, who you are. And when you write about, it's the same reason I felt like scrapbooking made me a happier person. And I think it still does doing project life and stuff. When I write about the things that I'm grateful for in my life and I celebrate the little things that make me happy, I find that I am unbelievably grateful then in real ways to the people, the moments, the things in my life. And I just think this was one example of many different letters and anecdotes and whatever that people have shared that I'm very grateful for because I think it's important that all of us do this. And I, I also want to say that I know that I have a bigger platform right now because of the podcast and because of the blog and whatever than some other people do. But you have to realize that every one of you who you know, helps uh, a friend learn how to make something, who invites someone over for a jewelry making party, who brings a box of craft supplies, you know, to your local boys and girls club or whatever, like that all those things are you doing the same thing for other people, helping them through whatever it is they're going through in their life, you know, through art. And I think that's, that's the wonderful sharing, caring world um, that really is the art and craft community say hallelujah sister <laughs> <laughs> and it's true okay so um i want to share this comment from tina um she said aha moment share the process and the mistakes contrary to the never let them see you sweat sentiment i can show the world my true self and be okay do not create for the blog now I can breathe and let myself off the hook. Do not create for approval. Deal with the silence. Thanks for the love you show in this work. And I thought that obviously relates to everything we just talked about. But then she goes on to say some things that I th thought were interesting, some things we could talk about. She says, I like that you shared about sponsorship and payment. On the outside looking in, most people imagine that there is payment for everything. As an artist working to start a business, I know that is far from true. Some things you can charge for, but I have no clue what to charge for different things. If I go, Like if I go to teach in another state, almost every artist I follow on social media talks about traveling to teach art classes. But who is talking about this? What supplies are a must? How safe is it to check the supplies on an airplane? How does one connect to art venues around the country? What is the normal compensation? I am by no means a big name artist yet. I am just uh, uh, in little old Delaware. However, in the back of my mind, I have goals brewing, and I would love teaching art nationwide to be a part of my future. I do not know where to start. I would like to, just like to be directed to a community where these conversations exist. Oh, my God, this po podcast was packed with coolness. I am still thinking. So I wanted to offer a couple resources. 
So the first thing is, I don't know of any community where these conversations exist. People are actually pretty secretive about this stuff, which is an ongoing issue. But I did write an article, which you can find on my blog, on like how to charge for teaching. That shows you the formula that I use so that you can figure out how to charge. Um, Wasn't it also, it was part of a cloth, paper, scissors article. It later appeared in cloth, paper, scissors. But yeah, I do have that article on my blog too. If you use the search box in the lower right side. Uh, What should they search for? um, If I were going to look for it, I would do something like um, charging, teaching, money, you know, something, some combination of search terms and it will come up. Okay. Um, Then the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, first of all, teaching in other states look super glamorous <laughs> it's not that glamorous um i like it because i like to meet people from all over and i think that's interesting but it is tiring and it is hard and it is not as lucrative as you would think but anyway regardless if you're really interested and committed then generally what you do is look for people who have similar styles to you so I am not going to look for an artist who makes like beautiful, clean line, Barnett Newman-esque art and then, you know, find track down where they taught and contact that venue because that venue is probably not interested in me. But if I find somebody who creates art similar to mine, then, and I know who that is, then I can look at where they've taught and I can contact that venue and say, hey, you know, my name's Julie. I'm an artist. I teach classes. This is the list of classes that I teach. And then you either need to have some sort of web page or some kind of brochure that you can give them. Um, and if you're ever interested in having me come teach, you know, I'd love to talk to you about it. That's basically the way that it works. Um, and I have never had a problem checking supplies on an airplane. I will tell you one thing I always do is I check my paint and supplies in a separate bag from my clothing because TSA almost always opens all of your paint and does not necessarily close it again. Um, and I've ruined enough clothes to have learned that the hard way. So pay for two checked bags. It's worth it to not end up with a suitcase full of paint. You can also ship it ahead of time. You can ship it ahead of time if you are uh, a person who is together and organized. I am not a person who is together and organized, and I never get my butt together in time to ship it. Um, But you can ship it both ways, and sometimes that's really easy. Um, And then, you know, normal compensation, there's no such thing. It's what it's worth to you. If you think you're worth, you know, $10,000, then you are. If you think you're worth $500 than you are you know and i think you start somewhere and you build up from there anyway so does that kind of answer those questions what do you think mom yeah i think it's never going to be as lucrative as you think it is because there's so many expenses getting from your house to the airport the plane flight food lodging transportation in the place where you've gotten to shipping or whatever i mean i think you have to really be businesslike about calculating what minimum number of students makes it worthwhile for you to go and teach somewhere and and you have to understand that this is not like a license to print money there are reasons to teach in other states beyond just making money and those have to be uh 
important to you to make it worthwhile. I agree. I mean, so for instance, so yesterday I got a text from Jenny Doe. I go and teach at her studio in Santa Ana almost every year because it was always convenient. I was out there already for CHA, which is held in Anaheim. And she said, hey, I know we don't have CHA to piggyback on, you know, when can I get you out here in 2017? And suddenly this trip is taking on a whole other, you know, thing because now to fly across the country and her classroom holds like maximum 17, you know, students, uh, it becomes a whole other financial calculation. How do you make that work? You know what I mean? When you have to include all that other stuff and it's, I, I think it gets difficult. Right. Um, anyway, so just lots of stuff to think about if you're interested in going in that direction. Um, I'm going to, I have a couple more reader comments to just quickly cruise down. Um, one is, I just liked this line that Caroline had, which is, she says, I totally agree about everyone being creative. I'm always telling people, if you're not creative, you're not alive. It's more to do with how you think about what you do than what you're doing. And many people seem to think that creativity begins and ends with being able to draw or paint portraits and landscapes, you know. And I thought that was really interesting because I think I like that idea that everyone's creative and that just being alive means you're creative. And that creativity, this idea that it's about what you're thinking about than what you're doing. I think that there are people who are creative with food, people who are creative with the way they dress, people who are creative with the way they decorate their house, people who are creative about, you know, finding a way to fit exercise into their day, people who are creative about you know, varying their workouts, people who are creative about teacher gifts, people who are creative about whatever it is that, that choosing to define yourself as not creative is this, is something you do to yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And that we all need to embrace, if I may kumbaya for one moment, we all need to embrace our inner creativity. Well, creativity is about choices. If you are making choices and selections, you are exercising your creativity. Right. I watch Netflix very creatively. Well, maybe you have a creative (laughs) choice of what you watch. (laughs) Who am I to judge? It's true. Anyway, our last comment for the day... um, is Beth said, uh, thanks for doing this new format. I enjoy listening to you while I exercise and it makes that painful chore so much more enjoyable. One comment about art versus craft. Needle artists have the same problem. Why is my needlework art versus just a craft? It is something that is often discussed within the Embroiderers Guild of America. So then I went to look up the Embroiderers Guild of America because I was curious. I hadn't heard of it and I wondered what they offered. And I, I just have to tell you, they offer this fascinating thing, which is they offer these correspondence group courses. So my understanding of how it works is that it's a correspondence course, meaning it actually goes through the mail. I think it's maybe email now and not just like regular mail, but it's for groups. So there's a fee per group, meaning like your local guild could take the class and they give you handouts and they talk about like, but it's all like it's six lessons that are going to take six months because obviously when you're embroidering, it's slowing everything down and you end up making, you know, a hand towel over the six months that's embroidered. Right. 
Um, and they tell you like the fee per group, the fee per student, all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting. But they have all kinds of resources and certification programs and stories. And they have a, they have a magazine and they've got boards and they've got videos and they've got, you know, all sorts of amazing stuff. And they've got individual correspondence courses and master craftsmen. And I just thought, there's just so many resources out there. I know that her email was mainly about um, the idea of art versus craft, but I thought the Embroiderers Guild of America, which I will link to, um, is kind of just an amazing resource if you're interested in embroidery at all. And I, I do, you know, think I, I love embroidery and I think it's an interesting thing to bring into your work and it's certainly a great travel craft. So, or travel art. Ooh, see, look, I just did it. I called it a craft. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, the question about art versus craft is, for me, always goes back to that old quote, there's art and craft and craft and art, right? And the big question is, why do we need to make a distinction? For a long time, I think art was men and craft was women. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Or art me. is in museums and craft is out on the street. I mean, I think it was used as a kind of bludgeon to separate the high practitioners from the quote-unquote low practitioners, the trained from the untrained. And I think it's not useful to think of, of art that way anymore. Well, I guess, again, I come back to, like, you know, words are important. And I think some people like to be called craftsmen or craft people, and some people prefer the term artist or artisan or whatever. And I think it's like anything. I think you call people what they want to be called, you know? I'll do that. Really? So if I ask you to call me your Royal Highness, you're going to call me that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting tired of your majesty anyway. Okay. It's time for a change. There you go. There you go. Okay. Anyway. So thank you to everyone who sent in all your letters. I couldn't include all of them. There were so many and comments and all that kind of stuff. But I hope you will continue to keep us on our toes and tell us what you'd like to talk about, what you're thinking about, whether it's related to what we're talking about or not. Um, and then do let us know. We've been pretty regular with podcasts every two weeks since we declared that was going to happen. And I think it's a good thing. I hope you think it's a good thing. Mom, do you think it's a good thing? Sure. At least I talk to you once every two weeks now. <laughs> okay. Anything else you would like to say on wrapping this up? No. Okay. Once again, stunned us into silence. Thank you, Mother. So, as always, you can find me at balzerdesigns.typepad.com and do leave us your comments or questions at balzerdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag poundartingpodcast. That's all one word, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks on the next Adventures in Arting podcast.